Hello, and hope you're doing well. One of the perks of doing this podcast is meeting so many interesting people who work in various animal-related fields. Today, I look forward to speaking with Emily Gilb, who works at the Asheville Humane Society. She has helped expand community-based programs that aim to increase access to pet services in underserved communities. This includes helping people in crisis and finding ways to keep their pets in their own homes. As part of my community project in the Veterinary Social Work Program, I tried to find resources to help low-income clients so they could keep their pets. Having pets can be expensive, but with so many animals needing to be adopted and knowing how important animals are in people's lives, it was a project that was really important to me. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to talking to you today. So I'm glad that you're able to make it. We were able to connect. Thank you. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got started in the field? Sure. So like many in the animal welfare field, I really just kind of fell into this field. While I was serving in the Peace Corps, I volunteered at a vet clinic in a nearby city, as well as with a grassroots dog rescue And so when I came back, I just happened to meet the Northeast Regional Director with HSUS, and I ended up interning with her for several months. And through that internship, I learned about the range of different activities that were happening within the animal welfare field, which I really had no idea about previously. So um, when the safety net coordinator position opened up at Asheville Humane Society, it just really seemed like a perfect combination of getting to help pets and people and I guess you could say the rest is history. That was six years ago, and I'm, I'm still here in this field today. That's wonderful. And you have a really interesting background. Tell me a little bit about the Peace Corps. You were in the Peace Corps for a while. I was, yes. Yeah. So I served in the Peace Corps in Ecuador for 27 months. I lived in an indigenous community of about 200 people in the jungle. And in Ecuador, dogs are, you know, kind of a nuisance for the most part. They're seen as dangerous and just kind of a nuisance in the street, though it is it is changing in some areas. So needless to say, there are a lot of street dogs there. So that was definitely a piece of kind of how my interests developed. Um, I worked in the Peace Corps on a lot of projects with women, alternative livelihood projects. I also ran youth groups and helped create family gardens. I taught environmental education in the schools. And I also learned many other skills, um, like how to use a machete, how to <laughs> weave a call and carry a baby in a sling and all sorts of very interesting skills. I live with a host family there. I had about six host siblings and seven or eight nieces and nephews and lots of extended family members. So it was a really, really interesting and unique experience. There are a lot of social issues there um, and it definitely was really difficult to watch the domestic violence and animal abuse in particular. Um, so I really had to learn how to, how to look beyond kind of that 
first glance, you know, someone's behavior and and see the the background and the history and the different social issues that exist behind someone's behavior and and be able to kind of just learn how to how to look beyond and work with people and connect with people in a different way. So it was it was a very interesting and unique experience and I'm actually really thankful for the experience because I never thought I would work with people. <laughs> I was always a an animal person growing up and um that really kind of kind of grew my interest in, in in working with people. And you see how we're all connected. Yes, absolutely. We, always, we all have something in common, despite being from very different places. I bet you have just tons of stories to tell about your adventures and what you learned. Oh, absolutely. I could talk all day about my time in the Peace Corps. <laughs> Return Peace Corps volunteers drive people crazy with our, our many stories. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, I saw I went to see a TED talk in person and the lady was from the Peace Corps and she talked about mm-hmm. how she taught a whole village of women to bake bread using an outdoor oven with bricks. And my wow. sister actually tried doing that because she loves baking bread. And so she had the speaker who happens to be in this area teach her in the backyard how to create brick oven so she could bake bread. And she did it outside in her backyard. Wow, so, that's amazing. What a great I just experience. love Peace Corps stories. They sure are unique and interesting. <laughs> but it's real life. It is, absolutely. Yeah, and we can certainly learn from those experiences. And I don't know if there's any correlation, but you have an Ecuadorian jungle dog. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. So my dog, um, Cisa, she is from Ecuador. She is from a nearby community from where I was serving friend of mine who was about three hours or so from me in the jungle in another community actually had seen her, Cisa's mom, give birth and kind of watch Cisa and her brother declining. So the mom was in bad shape. They were street dogs. There was nobody really caring for them. Um, so finally, Cisa was at the point where she was pretty close to, to dying. So my friend picked her up and brought her to me and knew I was a softie. So she said, you know, can you take this dog? So I took little baby Cisa and she was under three pounds at that time and was just skin and bones, had infected wounds and mange and tapeworms and all sorts of issues. And she broke her leg then shortly after, just had really soft bones due to malnutrition. It was a pretty rough start for her. It took many, many months of veterinary care and and just treatment to get back to to become healthy. She she's healthy now and um, came back to the US with me about a year and a half later and is still with me today. She's, she's my best buddy. She's, we're very connected. We have a very strong bond and she's a, a special girl. Eight years later, she's, she's still with me. Wow. I actually, when you told me that you had an Ecuadorian jungle dog, I had to look them up on the internet and <laughs> I don't know if they all look the same, but do they, they don't have hardly any hair, right? Some of them don't. And I don't know if it has to do with the climate. It's very strange. Um, Cisa actually, she looks pretty different now that we live in the U.S. Her coat has grown a lot longer. It's, it's very odd. <laughs> well, that's really interesting to me. And look at what you did to save her life, too. Yes, I feel I feel very lucky to have had had her come into my life. And it was a, an experience, that's for sure. <laughs> so when you came back after the Peace Corps, how did that lead to your work with immigrant community and then also people experiencing homelessness? That's a really good question. Although it's not really, it's not really quite the same. The experience I had living in a community where I, I really didn't understand the language in my community, they spoke primarily Quechua, which is an indigenous language. 
So I didn't understand the language. I didn't really understand the culture. That kind of gave me a window into what the experience must be like for some immigrants um, in our community and how challenging it is in just so many different ways. I also speak Spanish now from the Peace Corps, so it's made it a lot easier for me to be able to engage with our Spanish-speaking immigrant community. And then I also have a better understanding of the cultural norms that many of my um, families that I work with have in their lives. And so that has just really made it a lot easier for me to connect with those families and understand where they're coming from. I just really enjoy being able to kind of make that connection with families who who may not, who may really struggle to access services otherwise. So it's been a really positive experience working with that community here. And when it comes to homelessness, I don't know exactly how my work transitioned into that. <laughs> I think the Peace Corps just really gave me a different perspective on people and made me kind of curious about people's stories and their relationships with their pets in particular when it comes to homelessness, when, you know, someone doesn't even have a place to live and yet they have a pet. Clearly that's, you know, that's something really important in their lives. So I think my experience just, just kind of made me really curious to know more about where people were coming from. And that just translated into naturally into working with people experiencing homelessness. There's a lot of stigma attached to homelessness. And, you know, I've heard that from several people over the years because the community support program that I worked in, it was a community outreach program for the mentally ill population. We had a really high homeless population as well. And a lot of them would rescue dogs from the street or cats, Mm. whatever it was. And there was some stigma like, "Mm, they can't even take care of themselves. How are they going to take care of an animal? And that was their life. That was their family. And a lot of times we couldn't get services for these clients, housing or hospitalization, Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to leave their pets. So that's what started my interest in the community service project through the veterinary um, social work program. That was my my project was to try Mm -hmm. to bring in as many resources to help um, our clients as possible. And sometimes that would, like I said, in another podcast, it would help us get in the door if we took pet food or pet treats And then so the clients would then trust us and say, oh, Mm -hmm. you value my pet. So, all right, you must be an okay person. Absolutely. We say that all the time. You know, we've done some work with working with individuals experiencing homelessness in collaboration with our health and human services here on their hepatitis A campaign. And it was really interesting to watch sort of people coming to us because we had all the pet services and not really going over to see the nurses at the other tent. So we had this kind of really unique, you know, foot in the door with people who just absolutely love their pets and, you know, want to make sure that they are taken care of. And then, you know, through that bond we built with them, we could help connect them with, with human services as well. So it's definitely very true. And I agree with you when it comes to the stigma, we hear this quite a lot as well. Although I can, on one hand, sort of see the the concern that comes along with that, I think the issue is just not really that simple. It's not so black and white. Like you said, we really see that in the for the most part, individuals experiencing homelessness who have pets just have a really strong bond with their pet. That is their life. It's kind of what keeps them going day to day, and in for the most part, they put that pet's health and well being ahead of their own. I think it's really our implicit bias that makes us think, well, they're being irresponsible because they don't have a home and yet they have a pet. But we don't really know their stories. For many of our clients, they've maybe lost a job and one thing led to another and they ended up on the street. Or maybe they took in a stray and were doing a good thing. So 
think it's important for us to really identify that as an implicit bias that we have because we also judge people when they give up a pet. So we have to remember the other side as well, that we also tend to judge in the animal welfare world when someone gives up a pet due to housing instability. To be honest, I find myself judging people when I find out that they give up a pet to a shelter because it no Mm -hmm. longer fits in with their their lifestyle. Absolutely. The tough one, it's, I think that's the implicit bias that we all have that, you know, we want to see people committing to their pets, maybe in a way that, that I think is right, that I may do for my pet. And the, the reality is that everyone's situations are different. And sometimes the best decision for some people and some animals is for the pet to go to a shelter. We hate to admit that, but it is the truth that sometimes it is better. Um, in the case of homelessness, I don't feel like it's my decision to choose whether someone deserves a pet because there are so many benefits to having a pet for mental and physical well-being, for PTSD, for all sorts of, of challenges. And I think that people need that in their lives. And I actually recently worked with a client here. We had a really cold spell a few weeks ago. And so my team went out to some of the homeless camps to try to get some services out to people. This individual told me, about his dog, he said, I'm so thankful for him because he gives me a reason to focus and keep going. Mm. He keeps me out of trouble because if I get into trouble, I can't take care of him. Oh. And I thought that was a really, uh, really poignant and really just a sentiment that um, we hear a lot that this this pet is, is more than just a, a companion for him. I really enjoyed working with that client. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. That's very definitely. I remember we actually did a, an article for one of our healthcare organizations' newsletters, and got mm. a lot of positive feedback from that. The client allowed us to share the story, and this person adopted a pet that was on his treatment plan. All of us were like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he's in another hospital. I don't know if he should do this." And he ended up just doing it on his own because nobody was helping him <laughs> do it. Oh. And I'll tell you, that was what turned his life around. No more substance use. It was absolutely mm. amazing. Tried everything else. Nothing else worked except for this dog. And so after we wrote the article and it was published, we had staff from the organization say, could I sponsor this dog's veterinary bills for a year? Could I wow. do this or that? And it was absolutely amazing how people would reach out just based on that person sharing their story. That's incredible. I think that just shows the strength of that human-animal bond. And any of us that are pet lovers that have our animals that we're bonded to, and we can kind of understand that that bondedness, and we say to ourselves, well, well, I would actually do that same thing if I got in that situation. I would live in my car with my dog. We can we can understand that that commonality there, that that, that strength of that human-animal bond is just so strong and amazing, really, when it comes really, down to it. It truly is. I feel like I say that in every single podcast episode, but (laughs) it's really, truly why I'm doing this podcast. And it's what made me start because I noticed it in my own life and the benefits. Mm -hmm. And then I started hearing other people talk and then the certificate program. And that was so meaningful to me, which then kind of launches me into asking you about how you started the human animal support certificate through the University of Tennessee's program. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, when I found out about this program, I was extremely excited because I felt like I'd finally found my people. I'd been running these programs through my work for a number of years, and it felt like that that was veterinary social work, what I had been doing. So it's it's really impossible what we've been saying to separate the people from the pets. So 
I felt like this certificate was a really good chance for me to gain some additional experience with the human side of things, especially because we were just seeing, we started seeing a lot more complicated cases um, of clients that you know, were experiencing mental illness, domestic violence, homelessness, as we talked about, um, just more complicated challenges that myself and my team were not really trained or prepared to, to handle effectively. So when I learned about the certificate, I just felt like it was a great chance to kind of gain some more of that experience on engaging with people and mental illness, as well as being able to connect with other people doing similar work. So it was really, I found it to be a very beneficial program and really made me more confident in, in handling some of the crisis situations that we deal with, because we just really can't separate the pet from the person. And we can't just give a pet service and that's it. It's not how it works. <laughs> so having that ability to handle those crises, um, I think is really important and knowing, knowing how to connect people to other resources as well has been really invaluable. And I'll tell you what, the people who know me <laughs> will laugh when I say this because I'm kind of laughing at myself too, but all through graduate school and every time I've gone to a training where we have to do role plays, I immediately cringe. There's nothing that makes me cringe faster <laughs> than being told that I'm going to be doing a role play. When we finished up that, you know, the intensive and we had to do nonstop role plays for that entire week, I pretty much cringed, but there was such value in it. Mm -hmm. you know? And there was value in them watching me interact with somebody who was in a crisis situation with their pet and then trying to navigate and work through that. I thought that was very helpful. Absolutely. I think it just, each situation is so different. And in the moment, you have to kind of pull from everything you know to try to figure out how to handle it. And some of those situations are hard. Very hard. <laughs> um, very difficult. So I, I agree with you. Absolutely. Having that practice is is helpful. And having other people who have maybe different experiences give ideas on how to handle those situations differently or different ways to engage the person. I agree. I think that's just so hugely helpful in our field. I think what else is really, really helpful is knowing that you're not in there alone, that it's mm -hmm. important. You know, I, I used to love working as part of a team. And so mm -hmm. you didn't have to have all the answers you to try to figure out where to go and get it. But you had the support of other people that are like-minded. And so you can bring in other people to say, hey, I need to consult about this. Mm -hmm. And also to help de-escalate or debrief at the end of the day, too, because I'm sure that you have some challenging situations. Yeah, we absolutely do. And I think with the ongoing impacts of COVID, we're just seeing more and more individuals experiencing experiencing crises and really complicated crises that don't have an answer when it comes down to it, don't have a solution so I do think, like you said, having a team to work with, having other resources to refer people to is really, really important for this work because we can't fix everything as much as we would like to. We can't, we can't fix all of these solutions. We can hopefully make it a little bit better for someone and, or for someone's pet. Uh, when it comes down to it, we can't, always, we can't always do as much as we would like to do in these situations. And that's really frustrating, I know, because you want to be able to help the people and their pets. Absolutely. It is very frustrating. It's one of those things that never gets easier. <laughs> Just no, longer how, no matter how long you do it, it, it never gets easier when you can't help someone as much as you want to. But it is a reality of our work, as, as you know. Right. And so an, another goal of me doing this podcast is to open up people's eyes to the needs in the community and the needs of individual mm -hmm. people and their pets 
And maybe somebody has an idea of how to create some service resources, services, whatever. Uh, that's what we used to do. The healthcare community mental health program I used to work in. You know, you'd bring up a question and then you try to bring it up to as many people as possible to see if somebody mm-hmm. has an answer. I'd love to hear more about your program at Asheville Humane Society. What are com- your community programs? You talked a little bit about that. Sure. And, and I love talking about my programs. <laughs> I lo- I'm very proud of my programs. Um, so I run our community solutions department at Asheville Humane Society. And we have a department of eight staff currently run a number of different programs that are all really aimed at increasing access to pet services uh, for families in underserved communities and for individuals experiencing crisis, as well as keeping pets in homes where they're loved and out of the shelter. So we have a number of different ways we do that. We have a resource helpline. We counsel people who are needing to surrender a pet and try to, to help them come up with other alternatives if possible. We also have an outreach program that really works out in the community and some of our more underserved communities, such as our housing authority, as well as our neighborhoods that are tend to be more of resource deserts without access to a lot of services. And we also work really closely with our animal services so that we can try to prevent seizures of animals and citations that people can't afford by providing them support and assistance. And then lastly, we also do a lot with community partnerships. We found that to be extremely effective to work with other agencies who are serving people in some way. Since usually if someone needs assistance for their pet, they probably are in need of some assistance for themselves as well Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So we have found that that kind of partnership has has made us be more effective in, in what we're doing across the board. So you've really helped to break down the silos between individual organizations. Yeah, we've really worked hard to do that over the last few years. And um, certainly there's more work to do, <laughs> but we worked really hard in particular with social service agencies and, and churches and places that are you know doing some sort of programs already for people, but also with some government institutes. We work really closely with RVA and their homeless veterans program. We also, as I mentioned, we've worked with health and human services. We've worked with child protective services and adult protective services. So kind of a wide variety of different different partners really engaged in trying to trying to reach the same goal and help make people and animals lives better. That's absolutely amazing. Do you know if any other cities are doing your kind of program? You know, I know it is it is happening across the country. I know this is sort of the this this is direction animal welfare is actually heading because we've kind of more or less perfected adopting out animals. We know how to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know how to take care of animals in our care and our shelters. And yet we're still seeing animals come into the shelter. We're still seeing these same issues. So our field has finally stopped and said, hey, let's figure out how to prevent this from happening to begin with. Instead of just addressing it when the animals show up, let's look at why are animals coming in? It's mm-hmm. not because are a lot of horrible people that are just dumping pets. It's really, there are much more complicated issues and, and people that can't afford medical care for their pets. And the kindest thing for them to do is to give that pet to a shelter that will take care of them. Mm-hmm. There are people that use their homes and have no way to keep that pet with them. They can't take them to a shelter and they give the pet up out of best interest for the pet to, to be cared for. It definitely is the direction that the field is going as a whole and really looking at kind of prevention and how can we address these issues without the pet coming to the shelter? I really like the fact that you work across the spectrum of services that are available to help people. 
What specifically have you had to do for COVID to keep people safe and their animals safe? That's a really good question. It's it's been very difficult, <laughs> as it has, I know, for many people. Mm-hmm. We've had to make, of course, a lot of changes because most of what we do is directly working with people. We have kind of adapted in, I guess, several different ways. Uh, so one is that we we know a lot of people are going through a crisis right now, even more people than were previously struggling. So that means more people need assistance with their pets. So we knew we didn't want to, you know, cut back to the extent where we couldn't provide assistance for people. So we have adapted by running, you know, drive-through events where people can pick up supplies for their pets. We still run our helpline and we provide a lot of different services through that. We also offer transportation of pets to appointments. So things like uh, vet assistance, where someone needs medical care for their pets. If they have a transportation barrier, which is very often the case. Uh, We will offer transportation to get their pets seen. We also offer resources in Spanish uh, to make sure that that is accessible for everyone. We have recently had a mobile spay and neuter unit um, at our facility as well to try to provide spay and neuter since most clinics have been closed for quite a while. It's been quite a challenge as it is across the country. We've adapted fairly well giving out record quantities of pet food. We gave out 105,000 pounds in, in 2008. <laughs> My goodness. Yes. So there's absolutely just the need is ever growing. And we're seeing the community support, luckily, and, and really have been able to kind of cement some of those partnerships with, with our other agencies locally who are also doing such good work. So I'm actually still in shock over something you said just a, a few seconds ago when you said that you help people with their pets get to the vets for if they don't have transportation. Mm-hmm. All right, that, that is such a huge barrier for people that don't have transportation. Absolutely. You know, I had no idea when I started this work that transportation was such an issue. I, I grew up in rural New England. We had vehicles. I never really knew it. Was, I never really thought about it. And we just have found that it is one of the biggest barriers in our community both for people who live in rural areas around kind of our, our county, but also for people living in right kind of in the city because most bus systems don't allow pets on them. So you may be only a couple of miles from a vet clinic, but a couple of miles is a long way to walk with you know, a cat, let's say. <laughs> and if you have so, a sick dog or cat or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we've just found that is an, a gigantic barrier for so many people. So we try to mitigate that by offering transportation through our staff. And then recently we've started working with Uber to provide basically transportation vouchers for people to take their pets wow. in. And that is like the coolest thing ever. And so are you funded by a certain uh, source that you're able to mention, you know, in case other people would like to start that up in their own areas? Yeah, that's a good question. We are not funded by a specific source for the transportation Pretty much all of our programs are funded by, or the majority are funded by grants. Um, and of course, the large, the large funders, the PetSmart charities, the mm-hmm. big ones out there um, tend to tend to fund those sorts of things. I don't know of any funding specifically for transportation, but I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes, you know, something that exists because it's. I know from talking with other agencies, it's a a barrier in many places for people. That was a huge barrier in the, in the project that I worked on, as well as the pet food. So, you know, we access Bi-State uh, Food Pantry for our clients, and we'd send staff to go down and pick up tons of food. 
to be able to give out to the clients that we needed, but it wasn't enough. I know Nestle Purina was certainly helpful for a lot of our local shelters. And, you know, the other thing was finding veterinary care. We had a mobile Mm -hmm. vet veterinarian that was able to get a grant to be able to go into people's homes and vaccinate their pets in case the pets needed to be boarded in case the client needed to be hospitalized. Mm -hmm. So it was this, we almost had to map it out each step and each potential issue along the way to see where we could bring in services to help. It's really tricky. It is. There's, I think there are so many different moving pieces and for people who are in crisis, it can be really challenging to think through that plan. We also have a temporary sheltering program for, for crises situations. And we deal with the same complication of getting that pet vaccinated, getting it checked out by a vet, getting it to boarding, you know, with the transportation issue, all these different pieces. And it, it can be quite complicated, especially when someone's life is just in such chaos and in this crisis and they don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It can be really challenging to line up all those different pieces for somebody. But I bet that that crisis would start resolving in some ways, if possible, as long as they knew that their pet was being valued and taken care of, because I know that a lot of clients will go into crisis based on the fact that they think that they're giving up a family member or that something bad. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. We hear all the time about the people who, who won't give up their pets to go into a shelter when it's really cold and it's not safe to be outside or people who won't go into a substance abuse facility, a treatment facility or behavioral health treatment because of their pet. So it is absolutely true. People value those pets so much and they want to be able to get that pet back and not be separated from them. So I think those programs that, you know, do exist across the country are just so essential in helping these these individuals get the help they need so they can be reunited with their pet. That's a real benefit for our partner agencies as well, that they're able to reach out. Just the other day, I had someone from the emergency department at our local hospital call me and say, hey, I've got this client here. She just got evicted and I don't know why she was in the hospital, but she she had a pet at her house that was home alone. And the nurse said to me, you know, she she's refusing to come in and, and stay here. She needs treatment, but she has a dog at home she doesn't want to lose. And so that is just such a common common situation that happens. And uh, I think it's so important to have these, have that safety net for people in our communities. Yeah, very much so. When when I did a podcast with um, Dr. Pam Linden and also several other people Mm -hmm. mentioned the same thing is changing our mentality when we do an intake for when somebody comes in for services is start asking about their household people. You know, we ask about kids and parents and things like that, but we don't necessarily ask about their pets. Absolutely. It's, it's been really interesting for me learning about kind of the social service side. And, and I was surprised when I learned that most agencies don't ask for whether there are pets in the home. Um, so I think it's, it's part of that, you know, both of us kind of starting to collaborate together and, and recognize that in so many cases, a pet is part of that family and does really impact whether someone will access services and, you know, whether we all agree that that person should have that pet or not, it, the reality is that it's there and it's, it's a family member. Yeah, very true. You are also working with a program called Align Care. Be a little bit about this program. I've heard about this before and it's kind of exciting to me. <laughs> sure, I would be happy to. Um, so Align Care is a program out of the Program for Pet Health Equity at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. 
Um, this program was designed based on a study that was completed by the Access to Veterinary Care Coalition, which was started by Dr. Michael Blackwell, and he is also the director of Align Care and the program for Pet Health Equity. It's a really amazing program. Um, it is a One Health healthcare system, which really works to kind of align the current services that are available in a community. So including the social services, the animal welfare services, and the veterinary clinics. So it's really looking at increasing access to, to medical care, veterinary care for families um, who are, you know, traditionally in underserved areas, families who are on public assistance, in that way, keeping families together. So in many cases, the family may not have been able to access medical care otherwise. And so this program really works to provide that access um, as well as connect people with, you know, mental health services and, and other human related services and really keep those families together um, and keep the pets in the homes where they belong. And it's my understanding that the families that are involved in this program pay a certain amount. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so the families do pay um, a copay for this program. So the idea is kind of that there is that investment on the side of the family as well as the assistance on the side of the program. And I know there are there are other programs that will assist if it's a situation where the copay is is too much for the family. But in general, yes, the program does does ask that the client pays um, a portion of the bill, which is really nothing in comparison to a surgery or veterinary bills. It makes it, I think, a lot more accessible for people. I think, in my experience, I tend to see that a lot of the families we work with they just don't have this large quantity of money sitting there to use when, when they take their pet into a vet. They may be able to make payments or pay a small amount toward it, but when your pet gets maybe attacked by another dog and needs a $2,000 surgery um, and the vet you know wants 50% to even see the dog, that's just not realistic for most mm -hmm. people. So I think the Align Care program really makes it much more accessible for someone to be able to get their pet in and get them seen with an investment, but with a, a, a realistic and reasonable investment that's, that's doable for people. Well, the first time I heard about this was last summer during our intensive. And I'm wondering, how is it going now, several months later? And despite COVID, I know that there have been a lot of other focuses, but how's the program going? From my perspective, it's going great. <laughs> I am an official representative of Lion Care. However, I have been serving as one of the veterinary social work coordinators um, for Asheville. Asheville is one of the pilot cities and I believe was the second city to launch Lion Care. So we've been running Lion Care for a number of months now and it has just taken off. We have just seen huge numbers of people enrolling. We have just such a great network of vet clinics and social service agencies and then our animal welfare organization, kind of that system that already exists, that already has a framework. And so uh, we've just seen the program take off. It's beneficial to everybody. The vet clinics are able to serve people better. Um, the social service agencies are, are able to help refer people and get people assistance it's been just hugely beneficial for the community to have that as an option, have people be able to care for their pets and get them treatment needed and keep those pets healthy and happy. It's an invaluable program and resource to have in a community, absolutely. Yeah, I was really excited to hear them talk about it at the intensive, and I'm really hoping it's going to come to my area. I think that's the idea is that hopefully it will it will spread and we'll be able to use this, you know, what we've learned from the, the pilot cities to be able to kind of have it be hopefully everywhere. Yeah. 
So is there something else about your program? You have so many interesting programs that you're working with. <laughs> is there anything else we you'd do. like to share? We do. So we have all kinds of programs. We pretty much provide any sort of assistance someone might need for their pet. So we have a veterinary assistance program, which provides vouchers for people who are in need of care. Pre-COVID, we also were running kind of pop-up affordable pet care clinics to provide really low-cost preventative and wellness care, as well as treatment for injuries and illnesses, since that is the largest percentage of the issues that we see coming in for medical assistance. We also provide spay and neuter assistance, of course. Um, We provide behavior assistance. So we often see that people are surrendering a pet due to behavior reasons. Many times they're fairly simple issues that the owner maybe just doesn't know how to handle and maybe they're a renter and they're worried about, you know, their dogs hitting on the floor and and getting in trouble with the landlord. Um, So we offer behavior assistance, um, vouchers and consultations with trainers to try to help resolve those issues. We also, as I mentioned, we have our crisis sheltering program, which is, has been, uh, has had a lot of need in the last months, especially with COVID. We've seen those numbers really go up. We offer pet food assistance, as I mentioned. With that program, we actually partner with about 21 partner agencies. So churches, food banks, homeless shelters, Meals on Wheels, Mm -hmm. and basically provide quantities of pet food to them that they can give out along with their other services and, and human food. A lot of our pantries tell us that before we started that program, people were coming and getting food and they were giving the human food to their pet and continuing to, to stay hungry themselves. So even though pet food is in a way a really small service, we've seen that it's just uh, such a need and, and so hugely necessary for people. Very huge, uh, especially people in the rural communities as well. Absolutely. It's expensive to feed a pet. And I think, you know, we see most people will find a way to feed their pet, but it might be at the expense of themselves. And so it's been a huge need. It's one of the first things I think that people find that they need assistance with when they hit a crisis. I just recently heard about Meals on Wheels providing pet food. I was excited about that too. I thought, what a great idea. It is absolutely. And it's the nice thing is they already have such a again, a benefit of a partnership. They have the system in place, this framework. And so it's it's fairly easy to add that pet food piece on whether it's coming from an animal welfare agency or elsewhere for them to kind of just incorporate that into the system that already exists. Mm -hmm. Now for your veterinary clinics, do you have one on site or do you have different locations where people go to or how does that work? That's a good question. We wish we had our own veterinary clinic. (laughs) 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 We do not point. Um, We work with around 50 private vet clinics locally, so people can go and and utilize their voucher at the clinics. And then we have um, a partner vet that works with us on our kind of pop-up clinics that basically donates their time to provide those services. So we work with a lot of partners. It's really the basis of our programs. Of course, you know, with COVID, that's, it's been challenging. Vet clinics have had to change their standards um, and that's that's really difficult, but we're really thankful for these clinics because they just make they just make all the difference in in serving these families. They really do, and I know that people are, are really struggling, but doing the best they can during this pandemic. Absolutely, it's such a struggle all around for for everybody. So, do you have a wish list for things in the future? I mean, you're involved in so many different things, but what would you like to see happen with the programs that you're running now? Gosh, I would like to see these programs happening everywhere, honestly. <laughs> Me too. 
<laughs> in our community, I think continuing the access to veterinary care work is really important since that's the basis of so much, um, as well as the just the community partnerships. I can't stress it enough. I think that is the way to be successful in implementing this programming is to work together to utilize what systems are in place and work through individuals who already have built trust in the community to provide those services. I think a shift in mentality is key for that to happen nationally. A shift in how we see what is a good pet owner, what is neglect, a shift in kind of how we perceive people and their their pets as they're part of their family. And the one health mentality, I really like too. Absolutely. I think that is that is really key. And I know it's slowly percolating into the animal welfare realm, but it, it makes complete sense. And I think it's it's a great way also to engage those who are outside of animal welfare who may not necessarily understand or appreciate the human-animal bond it, per se. I think the One Health model also provides an opportunity to really connect with, with those individuals as well and with programs that are already happening with public health. Our listeners may not know what One Health is. Would you mind giving a definition of what One Health is? Sure. So I am, I'm no expert, <laughs> however. So in the One Health model, we're really looking at how the environment, the health of the human and the health of the animal all interact. So when you look at an example is looking at, say, a rabies vaccine. So in, in our realm, in the animal welfare realm, having an animal vaccinated against rabies is, is really important. But for someone else outside of this field, they might think that's that's not a big deal. But if we're looking at it from a One Health model, we're saying, okay, from the human health perspective, that can be a public health issue if the mm-hmm. pet is not vaccinated and maybe and maybe bites a child. So that's really important. It's important for community health, and then it's also important for the the pet's health. So Align Care is a One Health One Health program. It looks at the human health, the pet health, and the health of the community around it. And it really does align kind of all those different partners together and creates a system that is, I think, really more effective overall for everybody. You said that beautifully. No, that was great. Thank you. I had just spoken with Janine Moga and her uh, interview should be, podcast interview should be out next week. But thanks again. I, I think it bears repeating because I think it's a very important concept and it creates a domino effect. One thing influences another. Because we're all living beings, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it also takes a village, and which you've certainly talked about today during our, our interview. Absolutely, and it's just so exciting to see see what is happening in this in this country around these these partnerships. And the veterinary social work program is a is a key example of how we can we can combine these different areas to to serve people and serve pets better. It's it's really exciting to see what is being created. It is. And I look forward to maybe talking to you again in the future and find out about more of the good work that you're doing in the community. Absolutely. We hope we'll have some good things coming up as as COVID passes, we hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that, that sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It have that behind us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Emily, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I have shared just about everything, but I think I think the big takeaway for me is that the human-animal bond is is the place to start. And I think looking at that and acknowledging and addressing our implicit biases are around pet ownership are really key in this work. And that's something I think um, that's that's the big important piece to to making this work successful. 
Well said. And thanks so much, Emily, for everything you do in the community and with the animals and the people that you serve. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you again for having me. Have a good rest of your day. You too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Emily shared so many great ideas of ways a community can come together to serve people and pets in need. As we discussed today, we don't live in a silo, and what helps one person or one animal helps the community. Emily shared some stories from her work in the Peace Corps in Ecuador, and I'm sure she has more heartwarming stories to tell, as well as some stories that we can all learn from that may not be so easy to hear. People live challenging lives, and there's a stigma related to whether or not someone should have a pet if they're not even able to take care of their own basic needs. The problem is, it's not an easy question to solve, and not everybody's situation is the same. But we do need to ask the difficult questions in order to come up with a solution. It takes a village, and there's no reason why we cannot work together in order to find the resources to help others. During this interview, we discussed One Health and a program called Align Care, which I also discussed in another podcast episode. It's an exciting program that will help people on fixed incomes be able to afford regular and emergency veterinary care so they don't have to euthanize or give up their pets. I really hope the pilot program continues and expands to other states. Please take a moment to reflect on some of the questions raised during this podcast episode. There are some difficult questions that need to be answered, but if we all work together, maybe we can come up with solutions, which then ends up helping us all. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.